I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's myself, and the economist and author Will Page, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. This week, we have the inestimable Dan McCrum from the Financial Times, whose diligent work single-handedly exposed one of the great frauds of recent years, the German payment processing company Wirecard. Captured in a jaw-dropping new book, Money Men, A Hot Startup, A Billion Dollar Fraud, and the Fight for the Truth, and also the subject of a fantastic new Netflix documentary, Scandal. Over this two-part episode with Dan, we'll delve into bursting of bubbles, how companies try to throw journalists off the trail, and how Dan persevered to single-handedly bring down a $30 billion market cap company and expose the German establishment being more inclined to protect its reputation than accept that one of its favorite sons was a total fraud. More in a moment. Welcome back to Bubble Trouble with the esteemed author Dan McCrum, who has taken a huge scalp with the exposure of the fraud known as Wirecard. I've got loads more questions for Dan, but let me hand that over to Will, who wants to start off. Sure, and I, it just brings you straight back to All the President's Men. It's another scene in the movie, not ratchets and restaurants, but when the editors are debating, do we stand by our boys, to quote Ben Bradley, or do we just give in and write about the latest voting for the Republican leadership party? And it was the, the strength of Ben Bradley to stand by Woodward Bernstein that got that story to the point where it could take down the President of the United States. In the face of adversity, he never let go of his journalists. And I think we've got to give you the chance to tell the story of how important the editors were in this story. Was there signs that they were going to buckle? Or were they steadfast in believing in your mission to bring this company down? Well, that's a very kind comparison. And editors are very important, were absolutely central to this story. Sort of two in particular. So there's Paul Murphy, who is a proper old school news hound. His weapon of choice is the long lunch. And Measured in days, not hours. <laughs> you can't have lunch in just hours. I mean, what are we talking about here? <laughs> and segues into dinner. And Murphy has all these tremendous sort of, he calls them bandits or sort of bankers, rich businessmen who are all sort of addicted to stock market gossip and bread betting. And you know, from the very first day, he just said, Dan, follow your nose. So I'm sitting there scratching my head going, what's this funny little company? And he's like, well, just 
get on a plane and go and knock on the door. So I rush off to Bahrain and have this little adventure searching around the streets there for this business which didn't really seem to exist. And he was terrific because he was with it every step of the way. And we'd have these meetings. It would be me, the lawyer, Nigel Hansen, who was sort of in all, all the story meetings with us because we couldn't do anything without the lawyer signing off on it. And he kept us out of trouble. And then the paper's main editor, Lionel Barber. And sort of whenever we hit a roadblock or anything like that, sort of Paul would sort of go, hang on a second. What are we talking about here? We know we're dealing with a criminal company. And he would just sort of push it through. And sort of would do all the fighting and sort of make sure I had cover to just keep on going on the story. But we were also incredibly lucky that we had sort of Lionel Barber, who he was the editor of the FT for 14 years. And we got him right at the end of his reign when he wanted stories that were going to hurt the powerful, that were going to sort of expose secrets. And because he knew what we'd been through and he trusted Paul, you know, he was really with us in this and he's a terrific character in the documentary sort of brooding over the London skyline and yeah without his commitment other editors might have bowed in the face of legal threats the mounting legal bill which I mean by the end of it that ran to hundreds of thousands of pounds and yet so to do any sort of story like that you need an editor who's going to commit and stay with you. Mm. Fantastic. And as lawyers work on referrals, before I hand you back to Richard, you don't want to just name check the lawyers you're up against just so our audience knows who not. Oh, I always love to name check the (laughs) lawyers. Trust the pilot's got some reviews from you, I believe. So uh, Shillings sent us a lot of angry letters on behalf of Wirecard. Uh, Herbert Smith. Yeah, Shillings are an old favourite. Herbert Smith Freehill, the Silver Circle law firm. They've got the slogan, Um, my mission is your commission, right? (laughs) They got in on the act. And uh, Jones Day, there's what I expect will be another very good book from David Emmerich coming out soon called Servants of the Damned, all about Jones Day. But they have Mm. a small cameo in the Wirecard Affair. six stars in Trustpilot, I believe. (laughs) Richard. Yeah, I want to get back to a couple of topics that are near and dear to our hearts on Bubble Trouble because this animus towards short sellers, and I know let's separate short only firms that only go short on companies or do investigative research only with companies who would have a long short fund, so they will be buying some stocks and selling others. But at the heart of it, is it that every company believes they have a right to a rising stock price? Every company believes they have a right to be the only one who speaks on their own behalf. I know that what happens, we have another Bubble Trouble episode called The Charade of the Earnings Call, which not only is has descended into the sycophants and stenographers, but the fact is that most companies select the analysts who are allowed to ask questions on their earnings calls. That might not be well-known by journalists and others in the market. So they pre-select and sometimes pre-screen the questions that they're going to get asked. So is part of the problem here that everybody who lists their company just believes that they have a God-given right, that their stocks should only rise and people should only say nice things about them? Do you get a pushback whenever you sort of start to probe a little bit, even the reputable companies, a little bit with that critical needle that you use? I think it's always a bad look if a chief executive is standing up and attacking short sellers, then that is a big red flag that something is going wrong here. 
because mm. decent companies don't do that. They just fall back on, well, people will talk and here, let me explain it. It's quite simple. Right. But if they're saying, oh, no, those nasty short sellers, don't believe them. They're just trying to manipulate their share price. Well, it's quite an easy way to rebut short sellers is to carry on with running the business well and or simply answer the question. And, mm. you know, there's a great example which happened at the same time as Wirecard, NMC Health, sort of a yeah. FTSE 100 um, listed chain of hospitals in the Middle East, which went bust amid fraud allegation about six months before Wirecard. And actually, some of my colleagues, Rob Smith and Cynthia Omerchu, wrote a great story about how NMC Health seemed to be hiding some of its debt. And the company responded by saying, well, the FT is clearly in league with short sellers trying to manipulate the share price. And uh, then about a month later, it went bust. So <laughs> if you're falling back on that sort of argument, then it means you don't really have anything left. Well, and it's also fascinating to me listening to you here and on other podcasts. You can distinguish the one hand that the Carson Blacks of the world who have a business model or had previously that said, I'm going to go short a stock. I'm already taking a position myself. And then I'm going to issue all of this damning research, be it correct or not. And that is, I think there are some ethical questions around that. And there's a clear conflict of interest. But the notion that you, Dan McCrum, or the FT as a corporate entity would have a short position in Wirecard or be in cahoots or somehow profit from those who do have a short position. I mean, that seems crazy. But what's amazing is that people seem to believe it. Did people think you were personally benefiting financially from the demise of Wirecard? Was the FT thought to, in its pension fund, have, have bought a lot of Wirecard puts before they ran the story? I mean, how did people make that link between these short sellers who have separate businesses and the FT is that were you receiving planted stories? Is that was that the link? I mean, there are a lot of people on. Well, I say a lot of people. There are a lot of Twitter accounts. Quite a lot of them were bots. It turned out who were yeah. saying things like uh, "Danny Boy McCrim, you're going to jail" and all the rest <laughs> of that. They'd also spout Wirecard talking points. Yeah, a surprising number of people seem to think that the Financial Times had given over its front page to this rogue reporter who was corruptly being paid by speculators and short sellers. Right. And in some respects, we were lucky because once Wirecard and its minions had called the reputation of the Financial Times into question, there was no way that we could back away from the story. It's one of the great ironies had when we wrote that first story about this fraud in Singapore, Wirecard come out and said, yeah, you got us. That's it. Good story, guys. We're going to clean house. Yeah. It's all true. Then we might have declared victory. Brilliant. Look at what we did. Great story. But because they were like, no, no, none of this is true. And you're also corrupt. This is you're just trying to get us. That meant that we couldn't get away from it. We had to prove to the world that the Financial Times wasn't corrupt. And so they sort of killed themselves slightly because, I mean, they were criminals. They just couldn't, they couldn't think how to operate like a normal company. Hmm. Before I hand it over to Will, I, I want to take that the next step further, because I have a WTF moment with the German establishment, the Munich prosecutors, <laughs> the BaFin, which clearly was woefully negligent, Deutsche Bank, which was a major counterparty of Wirecard and the connections between these pillars of the German economy and establishment and this 
company that even in the most benign circumstances, well, let's just say it was a major payment processor for gambling and porn, which are legitimate businesses, fine. But where are or have you received any mea culpas on the part of the German establishment? Do you believe there is some change on the basis of the failings that you so so brilliantly exposed? So I think there was a lot of complacency inside Germany. One of the best explanations for how Wirecard got away with it for so long is simply that too many people didn't think it could happen there. Oh, no, this wouldn't happen in Germany. But you can... So whilst you can fault them for sort of getting a lot of things wrong, you can also congratulate Germany in the way in which it has responded. They've had a full parliamentary inquiry. Mm. They've reformed accounting regulation. They've reformed the way boards are structured. They've reformed the financial regulator, Baffin. So if you talk to fintechs in Germany now, they all complain about how aggressive Baffin is being. So contrast that with the UK, where we haven't had a successful prosecution of fraud for a long time. We've had some enormous collapses. Where's the inquiry into Carillion or Greensill or an old favourite of mine, Quindell, which was a smaller, yeah. dubious tech company that went bust? Oh, actually, well, almost. And... You can sort of say, okay, Germany was very much embarrassed, but it does seem to have to try to learn from what happened. On those UK examples, I always get my acronyms mixed up. Richard, what does the acronym FCA stand for again? Financial Conduct Authority, Will. But is there a variation on the theme? Well, if you read Private Eye, they would call it the Fundamentally Complicit Authority <laughs> because if they are seen by some observers, as are the Accounting Standards Board, having waved through some rather egregious behavior on the part of auditors and bankers. And in the case of auditors, we have been waiting for the foxes to rearrange the chicken coop for a very long time. But we are still waiting for the Prudential Regulator and others in the UK to finalize that accounting reform, long overdue, post-Greensill, Carillion, NMC, and the many other examples that, that Dan mentioned. So let's press pause on this blockbuster for a second, and uh, we'll be back in part two with more from Dan McCrum. Two more questions before we pass the Ducci over to Dan for smoke signals. But the first one is what's going to be on my TV tonight. And the second one is what I saw on stage at Kenwood House last weekend. But when I think about this documentary that's coming out on Netflix, do we call it a documentary or is it a biopic? It's got acting, but it's got real people. No, no, there's no there's no acting in it. It's a feature documentary. The limit of the acting, there's a few bits where I sort of, uh, of B-roll, where I stare pensively into um, right. a computer screen or chew my pencil. <laughs> but no, we actually, what we did, instead of dramatic reconstruction, what I think works really well is we have sort of comic strips sort of mm -hmm. illustrating what was happening nice. at that moment rather than having hammy acting scenes. Well, before I watch it tonight with Pringles at the ready, I just want to ask you about two documentaries which will be compared and contrasted with. One is Thranos Out for Blood and the second one is The Smartest Guys in the Room. Obviously, a lot of years have passed between the two, but when you look at those documentaries, were they 
inspirations for this story when you first heard of Enron? Did that make you think, I want to be an investigative journalist? I mean, th- it's going to be obvious. It's going to be a gold, silver, bronze comparison here when I watch it tonight. But I'd just love to hear what you thought about those two docs. And well, I think one of the reviews I saw said it was sort of a cross between All the King's Men and The Big Short. So, I mean, just to be compared in the same breadth as some of those other films, mm-hmm. I would be absolutely delighted by because they're all brilliant. And what I hope we've done is we've taken this sort of slightly complicated but also completely bizarre and fascinating tale and sort of given it the Netflix action thriller twist. So it races along. And so you're learning a bunch of stuff about nasty goings on in the financial system and all of that. But really, it's like, oh, you can sit there and munch popcorn because it's like, this is totally unbelievable. Did this really happen? Yeah. And uh, that's uh, if I go back to my favorite of that pack of movies, which is the smartest guys in the room. I just love how Andy Fastow can stand on stage today holding two things. One, CFO of the year in corporate America, and two, a six-year prison sentence. And he asks, how can it be possible that I was given these two things within six months of each other? If things fall, they fall far. So as Richard Kramer loves mm. to say, you know what happens when your stock falls by 90%? It fell by 80%, then it halved. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, Arsene Wenger says, you climb a mountain, but you come down an escalator. So... It's going to be interesting to see that. The second question I have for you just goes back to the FT Weekend Festival. I'm not sure if this is professional to do here, but I want to quote somebody from the audience who honestly raised a question to you but made a point and disagree if you want. But and I don't know if this person was a crank or a veteran of GCHQ, but you said what your work really exposed, so I'm paraphrasing here, was a link between Germany and Russia with regards to how business is done basically saying that Germany is always in cahoots with Russia. A former chancellor sits on the board of Gazprom, said that he was giving a lecture on this in Cambridge, didn't mention his name, you may know him, but I wonder whether when people watch the documentary and finish your book, that's going to be a recurring theme of the link, not obvious link, but the link between how Germans like to do business with Russia. So without giving too much away, one of the stranger aspects of the story is as we start to do it, we start to realise there are Russian links here. I mentioned how the main bad guy, uh, his name's Jan Marsalek, by the way. I've still got his wanted poster over my shoulder because he is oh, currently... You should speak to our producer. He's on our show next week. We've got him. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Excellent. He, uh, he disappeared and um, is currently thought to be living quite happily on the outskirts of Moscow. And it's one of the amazing things, but as recent events are starting to lead us to believe with the war that you would slightly be dismissed as a crank if you had said well the Russian government seems to be manipulating senior executives at German financial institutions to do its bidding but then here we are and suddenly that seems quite plausible after all. Now Dan we need to move to our final signature section of Bubble Trouble, which we call Smoke Signals. And that's where we ask our guests to do a little smoking with us and point out the kind of things that really give you pause. I think you already gave us one talking about how when senior managements are very defensive about short seller arguments or critical arguments about their companies, rather than deflect the arguments directly, they blame the messenger, so to speak. But what are a couple of things from your obviously incisive investigative brain that that the kind of things that make you go uh uh-uh something's wrong here 
the kind of things that you would suggest people look out for as evidence that there might be a bubble brewing or deep trouble underneath? So I'll give you two things. One is a favorite saying of mine from the American short seller Mark Cahodas, who says, there is never just one cockroach in the kitchen. <laughs> oh, so We've just got a title for our podcast. Yeah. yeah. If you find a company is lying about one thing, they're definitely lying about something else. And yeah. you can boil down a lot of my job simply to that, just checking right. Is that real? Did that really happen? Are you lying about something? Because nobody ever checks. Hmm. And the other thing, okay, so this is a very general comment, but uh, if anybody ever says the words distributed ledger to you, run a mile. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have listened to our, our uh, NFTs Not For Me podcast because I think we, we pointed out Will's simple confusion about having someone run up to him at South by Southwest and show him some unique animation on his smartphone that he had just paid for, <laughs> led us down a rabbit hole of realizing this was definitely not going to end well, and then going on to explain the concept of a wash trade when, uh, when two people decide to trade back and forth with one another to increase the value of something and no real money changes hands. And if you take a look at the value of OpenSea right now, it has pretty much imploded as the leading place where you were going to use distributed ledger technology to <laughs> trade non-fungible tokens. There is no trading in NFTs. I mean, we marvel about of this. You can look up the most traded ones and it is practically nothing changing hands. But I mean, but you know, I don't like to generalize except when it comes to crypto. The entire industry is one Ponzi scheme on top of another. And I would run as far away from possible as anything to do with it as you can. Ditto, ditto. Before handing you to Richard to close this show out, there's just one thing that's bugging me out, which is, how did you say it? You know something's up when you ask a CEO a question and they respond with another question. It just made me think of a certain recent president of the United States who <laughs> do that in many a unscripted press conference. But just to throw a little bit of trivia in there, there was another former president called Ronald Reagan in the United States and do you know how they made sure that he didn't get any asked any awkward questions? They would only allow the journalist to ask him questions when he was boarding a helicopter with Nancy. The point being the helicopter made so much noise, he couldn't hear an answer back. Clever. <laughs> and they got away with that for seven years. <laughs> I want to thank Dan McCrum because we are huge fans of the FT, of his reporting. Yes, yes. And honestly, he has delivered one of the most amazing, miraculous stories for any journalist to have stumbled into and at great personal cost and distress, no doubt, followed it through to a conclusion that is, in the end, the right outcome for investors and the markets and the right outcome to see companies like this flushed out and brought into the open. Hopefully it's a cautionary tale for a lot of other fintechs out there that have a dubious business model. When Dan comes calling, you ought to come clean at the beginning, I think was the lesson. Thanks again, Dan, and thanks, Will, and we'll see you next week on Bubble Trouble. Thank you. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope that you will follow the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, I'm Will Page. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.